So I want to take off on that song we just finished with, that He knows every detail of, our, of my life. He knows everything that's in our hearts. He knows everything that we've lived through, everything we dream of, everything we're scared of, every intimate personal detail and the deepest parts of our heart that we're not even aware of. Why do I do the things I do? Why do I act the way I do or feel the way I do? He knows. He knows things about us that we don't even know are there. And there's a scripture in Revelation 2 that's very personal and close. That Jesus says this, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat. And I will give him a white stone and on the stone a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. Jesus says, when he returns, one there's a whole list of gifts, rewards that he has for us in Revelation 2 and 3. We talked about some of that reward and judgment day several weeks ago, but Jesus says, one of the things I have for you is a new name that nobody else knows but you and me. Jesus has a pet name for you for each one of us individually. And it is the identity that He made us to be. Not what anybody else has defined us, not any other box that anybody else has squeezed us into or label that they've put on us or limitation that they've put on us. Jesus has a personal, private name that He has for every one of us And if you're scared of that, it's good. It's a good name that makes him smile that when he thinks of you, it is who he calls you. It's who he made you to be. It's all of your heart and life experiences and dreams and desires and pains and all of who you are in the deepest core of your heart. It's all that wrapped up in in one name that he has because he's the only one that knows that deepest core part even the closest people in our lives we cannot completely fully ever communicate exactly what we're feeling or thinking and who we are but jesus knows because he lives in there and he knows that deepest core identity of who we are he knows who that is And he has a name for us. He says, I have a name that I call you. That's wonderful, beautiful, precious, personal, private. Just you and me. I have a name for you. In Revelation 3, he says something very similar, but the opposite. He says, he who overcomes, I will write on him my new name. Jesus says, To those who overcome, one of the rewards that he has for us is that he will write his name on us. And he says it's a new name that only, again, he and his people will know. I don't know exactly what that means, but it's private, it's personal, it's an intimate thing between him and his people who will be named with his name. So when Jesus comes back, and we meet him face to face and eye to eye. One, we've talked about this for several weeks now. We, we have stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And 
we have the wedding supper of the Lamb that we talked about last week. Why would Jesus give us a new name on the day that we meet face to face and eye to eye? Because we're getting married. And on her wedding day, every bride gets a new name. Whose name does she get? His name. Hello, come on. Are you with me? Jesus says, I have a new name for you, and I will put my name on you. What does that mean? It means we're getting married. Revelation 19, in the chapter where Jesus comes down from heaven to earth with the sword coming out of his mouth and his flaming white hair, and, and he's taking vengeance on the earth, the angels are singing, the bride has made herself ready. The wedding supper of the Lamb has come. Blessed are those who are the bride of Christ, which is the church. It's us. So when Jesus comes back, one of the immediate things that happens is he gets his girl, which is his church. And we get married. And he gives us a new name. This Saturday, if you know her, Beja Robbins is getting married. And she will only be Beja Robbins until Friday. Then after that, she gets some new last name that's quite a bit more complicated than Robbins. I don't know what it is, but if Larry was here right now, he'd tell us what that is. But this is not just an American tradition or even a European tradition or a Bible tradition that a bride takes her groom's last name. It's pretty much worldwide across history and geography. Not every culture has done it, but most of the cultures in around the world through history, the bride takes her husband's last name because when a covenant is formed, there is an identity change. When Abram came into covenant with Yahweh God, his name changed to Abraham. When Sarai came into covenant with God, she became Sarah. When Jacob made his covenant with God at Bethel, where he has the dream of the angels going up and down on Jacob's ladder. He says, God, if you'll be my God and bless me, I will serve you all the days of my life. And the first thing God does is change his name from Jacob to Israel. He gives him a new identity when he comes into relationship with God. Jacob becomes Israel. When Simon meets Jesus, signs on to be his disciple, Simon means a weed, a reed blown around by the wind. Jesus says, nope, I'm calling you Peter, which means rock. Come on now. He got a new name when he came into relationship. When a covenant was formed, it changed Simon's identity. He got a new name. When Saul, the murderer and persecutor of the church, meets Jesus on the road to Damascus, he becomes Paul, the apostle of Jesus Christ, the preacher of the gospel to all the world for all the church age. It's his gospel that we read. We call it the New Testament. He got a new identity and a new name. God gives us his name when we come into salvation in him. Ephesians 3:15 and James 2:7 both say that we are called by his name. Ephesians 3.15 and James 2.7 both say that we're called by God's name because we're his children. We get his name when we come into relationship with him. It's not just that we're born again and we, we were a bad person, but now we're a good person, or 
well, we used to live for ourselves, but now we live for loving God and loving other people. It's that, but it's much more than that. It changes our very identity, who we are, and we get a new name. We get God's name. So Jesus, when he comes for his bride, will give us his name. Just like every other traditional wedding, Jesus will pick up his girl and give her his name. So Paul says that the relationship between Jesus and the church is like a husband and wife marriage covenant. And he says that's a great mystery. So we're never going to understand it all completely, even all of eternity. We will be learning from faith to faith. But let's just lay it out. Husband for Jesus, wife for church. And let's look at the scripture and see how this works. A marriage covenant and I'm talking about a godly, real love marriage, not any sort of sinful counterfeit or control or abuse or coercion. I'm talking about godly, real love marriage. A marriage covenant is never one of control or coercion, but it is ownership. Sarah owns me and I own her. Seventeen and a half years ago, we voluntarily gave ourselves to each other. So it was not out of force or coercion or abuse at all. But now, for the last 17 and a half years, I own her and she owns me. I'm not allowed to have relationship with my ex-girlfriends or any other woman that I confide in, but not Sarah. I don't spend private time with any other woman, but not Sarah. She owns me and that isn't control or abuse or jealousy or selfishness or domination. It is reasonable common sense. It is loving. It is intimacy. It is covenant. That's what marriage is. If you're not ready for that, then don't get married. Because marriage is a lifetime exclusivity. I promised 17 and a half years ago I would only have my mind, my eyes, my hands on her and not anybody else. And that includes my heart. So it's voluntary and it's a gift, but it is ownership. Absolutely. Sarah owns me and I own her. And she has every right to demand that I am exclusive to her. And I do of her also. So in our exclusive covenant, it's voluntary love. It's exclusive and she owns me and I own her, but I am her head, not the other way around. So she took my name and identified with me. And she didn't lose her identity or get cut off from her family, but she's now Sarah Coaston, not Sarah Elmer. Okay? She became part of me. She took my name. So when we come into salvation covenant with Jesus, we put away our old identity and our old life, and he gives us his name and his identity. We get his righteousness, we get his holiness, we get everything that he is as our identity. We even take the name Christ, the word Christian means little Christ. We get his name, we get his identity, and we get everything that he has and everything that he is and everything that he owns. It's all ours. 
And it's, there's no control, there's no domination, there's no selfishness or abuse or manipulation or any of that. It's in voluntary love, but we give ourselves to Jesus because he paid for us. He owns us. We put away our old identity and he put his name on us. So Jesus says, when I return, I will write my name on you. What did you do in elementary school with everything that you owned? You wrote your name on it. Your tennis shoes, your PE clothes, your notebook, your backpack, your jacket, everything had to be labeled with your name because it's mine. I own it. Don't lose it. Don't take it. Jesus writes his name on us because he owns us. He bought us with his very life. He literally could not live without us. So he purchased us. He owns us. He paid for our salvation. He bought his bride. So there's a horrible lie that American feminism has told our girls for three or four generations that they cannot be owned. That you're your own person and that marriage is controlling and you don't, marriage you'll lose your identity and you'll have to become your man's and you're not going to be property and you be your own person and you are totally free to give yourself to whoever you want. And both of those are complete lies and total destruction. And the sexual revolution and the feminist revolution of 50 years ago are the same thing. It was Jezebel coming to destroy masculine men and feminine women and the family with lying about our freedom to do whatever we want with our bodies and the marriage doesn't count and or matter. But if a person can't be purchased then they don't have any value. I'm not talking about sex slavery or anything gross and dirty like that. I'm talking about marriage, okay? If a person can't be purchased, then they don't have any value. Jesus bought me. He redeemed me. He purchased me. He ransomed me. I belong to him. This Bible says, I am not my own. I was bought with a price. He owns me. And he owns anybody here that you have given your life to him. He owns you. We are his servants. Jesus paid for his bride. He bought her. He owns her. So at first it would seem like women's liberation to tell girls that they don't belong to their husband. And the world tells women in America that the cultures where dad and the husband barter for her with camels or sheep are backward and evil and women are just property in those places. But then the same world in the same breath tells the girl, you're your own and you're free to do whatever you want with your body and just give yourself to whoever you want. You're free. Well, words that are equivalent to free are cheap and easy. At least prostitutes and porn stars have enough sense to charge money for it. If a woman truly values herself, she will make her prospective husband pay for her. I, don't, I didn't say she will make him pay. I said she will make him pay for her. Okay? And I know that's going to differ greatly from Saharan Africa to India to America. And I'm not at all saying we need to have arranged marriages like in India or pay for our brides in dowries and 
and all that stuff. I'm, I'm not talking about camels or money or even the cost of a Christian couple who is paying the cost of waiting to have each other until they're married. I'm saying if a girl truly values herself, more even though I don't mean, I, it's including her body, but I just mean her entire being, what should a young lady ask of a man? What can he pay for her? Is it financial security? Is it a nice home? Is it companionship? Is it children? There's really only one thing that the man she loves that is truly unique and completely personal that is the most intimate thing he can give her that no other man on the planet can provide, and that is his name, his identity. I give you me. If he wants you, girls, you better get him. When a woman voluntarily opens her heart and her body and her soul to a man, she is taking a huge risk. In, and I'm talking about real true love here. I'm not talking about any of the sins or the counterfeits or the disasters of the world. But in true, complete freedom of love as a gift, never ever in domination or control. But when a woman finds a man that she likes, she trusts him, she respects him, she honors him. She says, this guy will be a good friend, a husband, a father, a companion, a provider. She, if she values herself, she says, if I open myself up to you and I give my whole being to you, heart, soul, mind, and body, then I want you in exchange. And I want to be your identity and I take yours. This is Jesus and his church. A close husband and wife will have very personal memories, secrets, happy and sad moments that only the two of them know. If you've been married for two months or 62 years, you know this is true, that there's things between the two of you that the rest of the world is not privy to. There's things, memories, events, experiences, good and bad, that Sarah and I have had that our kids don't know about, our parents don't know about, you don't know about. It's what makes us who we are. It's what makes us one. It's what identifies us as a couple. You know Sarah and I as a couple. You know us as individual people publicly, but you don't know the private memories from vacations that we've had or romantic moments or fights. You, there's things that, I don't mean negative sinful secrets, I just mean there's private moments and memories and things we've lived through that were fun or tragic that nobody else needs to know about. It's our identity. It's our covenant. It's what makes marriage beautiful and powerful and it's, Besides our kids, it's the only other real oneness we have. Because we are two individuals with separate minds and thoughts, and we're living life together as partners and friends, but, but it's our experiences that identify who we are, that make us who we are, that make us one. Jesus says, I have a personal, private identity that only you will know. And you have a secret, personal, private name that only I know. That's Jesus and his bride. Is this 
secret intimacy of just the two of us. I mean him and his church, or I mean him and us individually in the depths of our core heart. He's that completely one with us that he lives in our heart and he knows it. And there's secrets there. And I don't mean secret sin, I mean good secrets. I mean things that dreams that you have or or confessions or or just personal, private, beautiful moments of prayer or worship or tears or pain or whatever you have lived through that he has lived through with you, he knows it all in a way that no one else will ever know. And he has an identity that only his church, his bride, can know. The world will never understand it. Lots of scriptures about the world thinks it's foolishness that we chase after, that salvation is foolishness. They don't understand why we don't chase after sin like they do. They cannot understand, First John says. They cannot, the sinful mind cannot understand the gospel. They don't know why we love him. They don't know why we do what we do. We do what we do because we have a secret love that only those who know him can actually have. So Jesus says, as the perfect model of perfect husband, says, I want you. And I give all of myself to have you, to the point that he died and went to hell, to buy our souls. And I give you my name, I give you my very identity. I don't just like you, I don't just love you, I don't just take pleasure in you, I give you all of myself, my very identity, and my name is yours. So completely that his reputation is up to us right now. <laughs> A lot of his church is completely misrepresenting him. But he has so completely put himself at our mercy for the gospel and for his name. That's how completely he has given himself to us. But Satan's so lied about this for so many generations in America that marriage has been so attacked and cheapened and twisted that the beauty and the intimacy of the bride taking the groom's name when a covenant is made is really long lost on us. We just, sort of a thing that people do, they just, the bride takes the last name. Or maybe not, there's all sorts of different arrangements. But there's a beauty and a power of that covenant that is made that changes identity, that changes a name, that says, I identify with you. Well, both the husband and the wife say that. I identify with you, and I want to live life with you as long as we both shall live. Jesus purchased his bride, and he gave us his name, his very identity. He says, Jesus says to us, I so love you, I trust you, I am so much one with you that I give you my name. You carry my authority, my spirit, my power, my kingdom. Everything I have and everything I am, including my most personal, secret, intimate identity, it's yours. A few of you are excited about that. Come on now. His name that he gives us is four things that I want to say. First of all, his name is his reputation. Proverbs 22 says a good name, a public reputation is more valuable than gold and silver. Jesus has so, so completely in love with us 
that he's given us his name, and then he gave us the responsibility of representing him. For the last 2,000 years, his identity is completely at our mercy. His public reputation is at our mercy because we're the ones that carry his name for now. Our name is not just some label that our parents put on us. It is all of our, it represents all of our being, who we are, our personality, our core. It's, it's, the, it's your personhood. It's represented by your name. It's so much more than just a, a label. And Jesus gave us his. And all of the authority and power that that represents. When a messenger in, back in the days when they had gates on cities and castle walls and stuff, a messenger would bang on the door and say, open in the name of the king. The messenger was saying, I have, I'm on the king's business. I have the king's authority and you have to treat me as the king until I deliver this message to the governor or the general or whoever it was. So when he said, open in the name of the king, they open the door and clear the roads and let this guy ride like he's the king. And he delivers the message. When we pray, in Jesus' name, amen, that is not a cliche tagline on the end of our prayer. It is, God, we just talk to you like we are Jesus. Because he gave us his name and we have all of his authority and all of the authority in the entire universe belongs to us. And all of the authority of the name and titles and authority of Jesus is ours. And what we pray happens and what we command happens and his authority is in our mouths and in our hands because his name is written on us we belong to him and we when we say open in the name of the king doors that would never open to anyone else will open because we just invoke the name of jesus it is not a trivial line at the end of our prayer it is i just spoke as jesus christ Because he's given me his name because I belong to him. Come on. Kings have lots of names and titles. Many, many names and titles. Queen Elizabeth of England has like 27 names and titles of who she is. And they all describe different aspects of her authority. I will read them to you. This is the official title of Queen Elizabeth II, current Queen of England. Her Majesty Elizabeth II, by the grace of God, of Great Britain, Ireland, and the British dominions beyond the seas, Queen, Defender of the Faith, Duchess of Edinburgh, Countess of Marioneth, Baroness Greenwich, Duke of Lancaster, Lord of Man, Duke of Normandy, Sovereign of the Most Honorable Order of the Bath, Sovereign of the Most Ancient and Most Honorable Noble Order of the Thistle, Sovereign of the Most Illustrious Order of St. Patrick, Sovereign of the Most Distinguished Order of St. Michael and St. George, Sovereign of the Most Excellent Order of the British Empire, Sovereign of the Distinguished Service Order, Sovereign of the Imperial Service Order, Sovereign of the Most Exalted Order of the Star of India, Sovereign of the Most Eminent Order of the Indian Empire, Sovereign of the Order of British India, Sovereign of the Indian Order of Merit, Sovereign of the Order of Burma, Sovereign of the Royal Order of Victoria and Albert, Sovereign of the Royal Family Order of King Edward VII, Sovereign of the Order of Mercy, Sovereign of the Order of Merit, Sovereign of the Order of the Companions of Honor, Sovereign of the Royal Victorian Order, Sovereign of the Most Venerable Order of the Hospital of King John of Jerusalem. That is her official name and title. Jesus has a lot of names and titles. He is King of Kings and Lord of Lords, the Son of God, the Son of Man, the fairest of 10,000, the Rose of Sharon, the Lily of the Valley, Healer, teacher, 
Savior, Redeemer. His, you could go through the Bible and list there's like a hundred names of Jesus, of who He is, and how beautiful He is, and His power, and His authority, and His dominion, His title, and we have all of those. Because of who we married. Not because of who we are, but because of who we married. Because there is. You know, so Queen Elizabeth's grandson is Prince William. And he married Kate Middleton. Everybody know who Kate is? Okay. Kate is Kate Middleton one day. And the next day, she is Her Royal Highness, Princess Catherine of Wales, Duchess of such and such and such and such and such and such. She has three Duchess titles. She's nothing in and of herself. On the next day, she is Her Royal Highness, Princess Catherine. She has castles. She has property. She has lots of money. Her parents were already pretty rich. But she has lots of money. She has servants. She has a royal coat of arms. She has a signet ring. And she has the authority of the name of the royal family of England. And she is a princess because of who she married. We are nothing. We deserve hell. Compare who you were and what you deserve because of that with who he has made you into today. It is not just that you've become a better person or that you're living a different way. You came into the church who is the bride of the king of the universe. And we are the queen of heaven. And we have all authority. Jesus said, all authority in heaven and on earth is given to me. Go and make disciples. I give you my Holy Spirit. I give you my name. I give you my kingdom checkbook. You will have no needs. You will have no fears. You will have all victory because you are my girl. Not because of what you deserve or who you are, but because you have my name. Come on. Princess Catherine, Kate, as everybody knows her, uh, she has an official title. She's Princess Catherine, Her Royal Highness, Princess Catherine of Wales, and then these three Duchess things that she is. Just because of who she married. It's not about her identity. It's, it's his, actually. Her official, formal, legal name is now Her Royal Highness, Prince William. You'll never hear that publicly, but that is her name. Her Royal Highness, Prince William. You'd have to go, we don't do that because we're not royalty, but you'd have to go back to my grandparents' generation when my grandma was Mrs. William Coaston and Mrs. Charles Hackle. Come on. When the woman actually went by, publicly anyway, and on legal forms and so on, her husband's name. Come on. Kate Middleton has no authority at all on her own. She took her husband's name and she has lots of authority. And when his dad passes on the throne, which he probably will, her husband will be king of England. And they only... She's not queen. She'll be called something else. But she will be married to a king. And all of the authority and riches and power and beauty, all the trappings, 
that accompany that. Because she's Her Royal Highness, Prince William. The church is Her Royal Highness, Mrs. Jesus Christ. (laughs) I know it's not what the Bible, that's who we are. We are Her Royal Highness, Jesus Christ. (laughs) We take Jesus' name, we're Christians, we're little, little Christ. Because his name that he gives us is his authority, his power, his wealth, his righteousness, his holiness before God, his approval of the Father. It's all ours. Not because of who we were. We were nobodies. But he loved us. He loved us so literally he could not live without us. What did he see? What did he see in us? But he did. He sees beauty. He sees value. He sees awesome love enough that he went, died and went to hell for us. And he says, everything I am and everything I have, including my all of the authority and intimacy of my very identity, it is yours. Go and make disciples. The whole kingdom is yours. And lastly, his name is his identity in us. When Abram made his covenant with God, his wife was sterile at 90 years old and he has no children. And God changes his name to Abraham, the father of many nations. God says, I don't call you anything other than what I made you to be. And your destiny and your name are the same thing. So I call you Abraham, the father of many nations before he had any children at all. God called him by his identity, and it came to pass. When God meets Jacob, Jacob's name means liar or trickster or deceiver. Heel grabber is what it literally means. Somebody who causes other people to trip to get what he wants. God says, what is your name? And he says, Jacob. He says, no, it's Israel, the one who wrestles with God. That story is so magically mysterious. It is amazing. God could not defeat Jacob until God touched his hip and put his hip out of socket. God cheated to defeat Jacob in this wrestling match. Jacob, so when God gives him this prophetic name of Israel, which means he who wrestles with God, he's not just saying, he's not memorializing that night when they had a wrestling match. God is saying, We're on equal terms, you and me. We wrestle with each other. We're equal strength. God spoke to his identity and gave him a future. He gave him a purpose. He gave him a destiny with his name. When Simon, which means blown about, a reed blown about in the wind, Jesus meets him. He says, no, I call you Peter. But Simon was a reed blown about by the wind. He was as emotional and sporadic and out of control as a person, as any of the rest of the disciples were. And Jesus said, I call you my steady rock. And three and a half years later, Peter stood up at the day of Pentecost and he wasn't moved by the wind. He was a bold, steady rock. And he preached the gospel for the first time, knowing he could lose his head for it. And the church was born because Jesus renamed him and spoke to his destiny and his identity. So Jesus speaking our name, whatever 
his name for you is in the core, deepest depths of your heart and being, what is it he calls you? It is the reason he made you. It is your very identity. It is your heavenly destiny and purpose. When he calls you by the name that he has for you, his pet name that he has for you, it is your identity, it is your destiny, it is your purpose, it is your very being. And if you ask him, he will tell you. I said, if you ask him, he will tell you. Maybe not right in that moment, but years ago, based on that scripture, where he says, I have a name for you that no one else knows. I know it says he'll give it to me when we meet face to face and eye to eye, but I just asked him, I said, okay, Lord, what is that name? I'd like to know who I am. So six or seven years ago. And he didn't tell me right then, but a while later, maybe a year later, I don't remember. He just dropped this name like a bomb in my heart. And at first it made no sense whatsoever. I looked up what it meant and it made all the sense in the world. Like, oh, that explains everything about who I am and why I think the way I do and, and what, I, what I dream of and long for and It was so completely, exactly right and personal. No one else, nobody else would have ever, not including me, would have ever thought of that name. Sarah never would have used it, but Jesus did. I'm like, oh, wow. That is amazing. Thank you, Jesus, for speaking me my identity, for telling me who I am you ask he will tell you who you are and he will tell you who he is in you because he has written his name on you because he owns us and because he marries us he loves us amen amen lord jesus thank you for your name thank you for your beautiful beautiful powerful name. 